we're going to move now into our time where we share the word of God together. And we do things a little bit differently at Heights because what we're doing is we go through the word of God in five years together. And we do this by reading the word of God together six days a week. There's a couple of ways you can follow along with us. We have a schedule reading that's available at the information desk that has all of our readings for the entire year. So everything that we read every single day together as a congregation, you can be a part of there. Or you can go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. And if you subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications. We'll give you a devotional based upon our reading that day. We read the entirety of the scripture we're doing that day, and we do a little bit more. We bring some practical application so that we're reading the word of God and taking a little bit with us to get us ready for what God would have us do that day in our lives. And then on Sundays, what we do is those six days worth of devotions that we've done together, we, our sermon is based in whole or in part on those devotions. And we break it down a little bit more, jump into it uh, together as a body so that we can become more mature in our faith and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine this. Five years going through the word of God, having 250 sermons based upon that word that we've read together. Imagine how much better you are equipped in knowing how to share Jesus with the world around you. Pretty amazing. That's our, that's our goal. That's our heart in doing this every five years together. And we are in really an exciting time. As we start our Advent season, we are also starting the book of Romans. How cool is that? It's pretty cool, isn't it? And the clap kind of kind of progressed this way all throughout. No, I, I think Romans is the best place to really end this year of study that we've done together. As we've gone through the Pentateuch, we've gone through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and then we jumped into Hebrews to see how that really connects with our faith in Jesus Christ. And then Numbers and Deuteronomy, and now we jump into Romans. And it's really, really amazing how God puts this all together for us. So we get to end on a great note together and a amazing reminder for us. And so today's sermon, we read the first three chapters of Romans together. How many of you read this week? That's pretty awesome. All right. So today's sermon is called No Better Than Anyone Else. See, there's a misnomer concerning the faith in Jesus Christ, which is sometimes true if we really want to be honest and want to admit to it. Christians see themselves better as any, uh, than anyone else. Sometimes we'll get that, right? Oh, you're just better than everybody else because you don't do blank. You don't do what I do or you haven't ever had any problems because you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You're just so perfect. And I would say that on our worst days, we kind of live up to that moniker, don't we? We really do. Some, some days we, we kind of step into that, that pharisaical type of stance that stands a little bit better than everybody else. But a lot of times it's just misunderstood that you and I living for Jesus is somehow treated as condemnation toward everybody else. And it's just not the truth. And for those who may be not believers in Christ and misunderstanding why we live the way that we do, my hope today is to share according to the scriptures why we live that way and a reminder for us as Christians as well that we really are no better than anyone else. 
we get this idea concerning uh, this idea of better than anyone else. Jesus encapsulates, I think, very well what we're going to talk about today in one of his parables found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it says this, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And as we read the first three chapters of Romans, which we're going to be all over the place in these three chapters today, I believe that parable encapsulates very well this attitude that, number one, we're supposed to avoid as believers in Christ, and number two, what we're supposed to have as believers in Christ. And we're going to see that Paul confronts this concerning not just himself and others that he's presenting it, but he presents this as a juxtaposition between the Jews and the Gentiles that happens throughout the first three chapters of Romans. Now, with the book of Romans is written to uh, a group of believers that Paul did not plant. See, this was a little bit different. Most of the letters that we read from Paul are from churches that he was directly or indirectly involved with their uh, foundation, right? He's the one who shared Christ with them. He's the one who shared Jesus to that community, and that community would grow, and they would appoint elders, and they would uh, begin to grow as a church. And the writings that we read from Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians are all these reminders of things that he has shared with them while he was there with them. Romans is different. See, Rome did not originate with Paul. The Roman church did not originate with Paul. And many scholars believe that the Roman church was actually birthed from the day of Pentecost, where we see people who were around all the world who saw the miracle of Christ, heard the preaching of Peter, and came to Jesus. And when they went back home, they were living for Jesus. And now Paul wants to encourage This body of believers that is there in Rome. And he starts his letter out this way. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as a human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. 
And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. First six verses, he announces the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Six verses, he takes the opportunity to share the promises of God fulfilled through Jesus by the Holy Scriptures mentioned by the prophets. These are the promises that were mentioned. They're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, who came by human nature through the line of David, but showed himself to be the Son of God by being raised from the dead. That's a pretty amazing thing. And beyond that, he begins to share the ministry that God has given him, that he is calling Gentiles into repentance, to obedience that comes from faith. And from very beginning, we see this juxtaposition of Paul, who is a Jew, who is speaking to the Gentiles about salvation from God found in Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, he expounds on this further, just a few verses down. In verses 16 and 17, he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now you have to understand, this is the gospel that Paul was entrusted by Jesus when we look back in Acts chapter 9 when he calls him and he sets him apart to be an apostle for the Gentile believers. And wherever Paul would go, when we read through the book of Acts, we see that the first place he would go is wherever the Jews would gather. You know why? Because the promises were for them. To the Jew first. He lived it out this way. Everywhere he went, I go and find the Jews. Whether they're gathering in synagogue or whether they're gathering by the river, wherever they're gathering, I'm going to find the congregation of where the Jews are in this community so that I can first offer salvation to them because Jesus is their promised Messiah. And I want to show where he's fulfilled, he's come, and he's done this. And at first... In all of these places he would go, it's like he was received favorably. You would see it happening. A couple weeks, they're like, we love this. This is awesome. And everything would always seem to go well until the Gentiles who heard the same message of faith and wanted to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and were accepted by Paul. And all of a sudden, the Jews, jealous that salvation was given to these heathen Gentiles, would get mad and push him out of most of the cities that he was there. So we see it happens over and over and over again through his ministry. We can read that in the book of Acts. And yet, Paul wanted to make sure that both Jew and Gentile had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we see these opening words right here through Romans, we see that he has set forth this idea that salvation is given to the Jew first because this is where the promises are from and also to the Gentile. And as he continues on in Romans chapter 1, he begins to make some points 
that are there within this text that we would do well to pay attention to because we can fall into the same problems that he ran into on the way. Romans chapter 1, verses 18. It would go all the way through 32, but we're just going to read 18 through 20. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Basically, he's saying this. God has revealed himself enough in nature that people should be seeking him out. That's what it says. And God would reveal himself to anybody who was seeking and earnestly seeking him out. But we don't really earnestly seek him out. And as a result, those who have strayed away from believing in God end up believing all types of nonsensical things. They start worshiping creatures and reptiles and things that were created by God but are not to be worshipped themselves. And then he turns us into a depraved mind to do things that we ought not do. And it talks about all the sexual sin. And then sexual sin that is turned even more depraved. And then it ends with this whole idea of, it breeds this idea of malice and anger and jealousy and slander and rage and hatred toward parents and hatred toward God. Everything that happens when we reject that there is a God to be worshipped. Kind of describes our society today, doesn't it? And so what we see is wrath is coming, righteously so, for those who have forgotten God. And to that, I think a lot of people would say, amen! I mean, how many of us have has honestly, longingly, looking at the trajectory of where we're at right now, sincerely said, come, Lord Jesus! Anybody? Am I the only one? Seriously? I can't wait until you come. Set all things right. Make all things new. It's a hope for every Christian. I'm there. I'm there probably more often than I'd like to admit. And Paul continues on with his argument and he begins speaking because obviously within this Roman congregation, there are a lot of Jews because it happened at Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish celebration. And so this church that is there have a lot of Jews that are there. These Jews love the law. The law, what what Paul wants to do is put in the right place what the law ought to be. And so in chapter 2, he begins to challenge those who are Jews, who are believers in Christ. This idea that them having the law made them come kind of superior, if you will, to those (laughs) Gentile hooligans out there with no law to base themselves in. We know why Jesus showed himself to us. He's our Messiah. But he's ours because 
we have morals and you guys are heathens. It's kind of the idea behind it. And Paul begins to challenge that idea. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, part of his argument says this. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It doesn't matter if you just hear it. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so here's what Paul is saying. You've got the law, but if you're not following the law, what good does it do? So you've got the law. You've got the written word of God that tells you how you are supposed to associate with God and with one another. And if you do those things, that is righteous. But those who do those things will be declared righteous, not those who just say, well, we've got the law. When the Gentiles who don't have the law do those things that the law requires, don't they show that they have a law unto themselves? Their consciences both accusing them when they've done something wrong. How many of you, before you knew Jesus, when you did something wrong, you were just like, oh, that was a wrong thing to do. I need to make that right. Anybody? Come on. Come on. Even heathens have consciences, right? Right? Seriously. Shouldn't shouldn't I be able to do that? Paul's argument is the person who walks more consciously with God, even though he doesn't have the law, is a better Jew than the Jew who has the law and decides not to follow it. So what good does the law do you? Nothing, right? Not in that case. So I have the law. It's like having a Bible on your shelf and never reading it. I've got a Bible. I've got Bibles all over the place in my house, and they're dusty as all get out, but I've got like 20 of them. You want one? Doesn't do any good. The law, though it was given to the Jews, was not in and of itself sufficient to provide salvation. And Paul is pointing that out. And then he moves on to the second thing for them, which is heritage. This idea of heritage, that I'm born in the Jewish lineage. And so we look at the end of chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, and he hits on this idea of circumcision, because this was a physical mark on every Jew that showed their Jewishness. How am I a Jew? Well, I'm, I'm circumcised. I'm part of this covenant relationship that God gave to Abraham and therefore, I'm, I'm in. I know the secret handshake, right? So I'm, I'm part of this group of people, and this is what makes me who I am. And so Paul begins to speak to heritage and says this, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as those you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? 
The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Oh, there's a mouthful right there, isn't that? You're not just a a Jew because you're one outwardly. Because you were born into a certain tribe or a certain family. You got circumcised when you were eight days old. That's not what makes you a Jew. What makes you a Jew is somebody who's obedient to the God who created circumcision and had the promises given to Abraham of one who was to come. This is how those who are not circumcised are going to obey the law in such a way that the Jew is not. And as a result of all of that, we have this juxtaposition between Jews and Gentiles that find its way all the way through Romans. And so far, Paul is challenging the Jewish people. Oh, you think the law is going to get you there? Nope, not going to get you there. You think your heritage is going to get you there? Nope, not going to get you there. As a matter of fact, we sometimes make the same mistake as believers in Christ. Raising our kids. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. Well, I was raised in a Christian family. Anybody ever say that to you? I was raised in a Christian family. It's almost like, I'm good. I got that. But no, it doesn't impart itself that way. We don't see grandkids of God. It doesn't work. We're children of God. There's no grandkids. We're adopted into the family. You have to make that decision yourself concerning that that includes everybody so i'm going to challenge some of you people right now some of you might be relying upon your heritage of your mother and your father concerning your salvation in jesus christ it don't work that way you can be told about jesus by your mom and dad till they're blue in the face it's still a decision that you have to make personally The Jews could not get in simply on their heritage. I'm from Judah. Well, that's great. But do you believe in God? That's really what it comes down to. doesn't matter if you're from Judah. There were a lot of unbelieving Jews. As a matter of fact, even to this day, if you go to Israel where the Jews are, about 85% of them are functional atheists. Do you think they'll receive the promises of God? According to the scripture, a Jew is not one if they were just one outwardly or by heritage. They're one inwardly that believes the promises of God. And if they believe the promises of God that was given to Abraham, it leads to the descendant of David known as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Those are Jews inwardly. And will have salvation. And so, Paul is challenging those who are there to break down these walls because he's dealt with it every place he's gone. He goes, he tells the Jews about 
the salvation that was promised to them and they rejected as soon as he offers that same salvation to the Gentiles. Because they think the promises are for them and them alone. But the purpose of the law is not what you think it is. The whole idea of trying to live up to the law is not something you and I can do. The law's purpose is to show how far we fall short. Now, I've said it before. Has anybody been commended by driving 35 miles an hour down Comanche? Cop pull you over and say, hey, I just want to kind of see you every day. You drive the speed limit every single day. I have a red sticker for you. Or do you want a green one? Hasn't happened to me. How about you guys? Anybody? No, because the law isn't there to tell us when we're doing right. The law is there to let us know when we have done wrong. As a matter of fact, if we read Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, this is the great conclusion that Paul is bringing to the law. And he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, Let me say that again. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. No one's declared righteous through the law. Remember chapter 2 we're reading. If you you obey the law, you'll have your righteousness through the law. But he's saying, doesn't he just contradict that? No, that's his point. You think you're good enough by what you do. You're not. Because you're still going to fall short. You're going to mess up. And your messing up isn't like, well, I didn't mess up as bad as that person over there. Isn't that what we do? I I didn't mess up that bad over there. I'm I'm better than that person over there. No, the, the function of the law is to let you know you're the depraved one. Everything written in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32 is you. It's me. It's everybody. And the wrath of God comes upon those who do not realize that they are sinners in need of a God to save them. Think that they can do it on their own think that they can earn salvation by doing the works of the law. And here's the problem with trying to earn salvation that way, guys. How many of you like rules? Some of us are rule people. How many of you like rules? Rules help me, right? I'm not a rule person. I mean, anybody who's been around me know that I'm not a rule person, okay? (laughs) Come to my office sometime. Okay, so, but some of us like rules. The idea of order is not a bad thing. Right? We want order. But here's the problem with rules. When we begin to see salvation as a list of rules to try and earn the favor of God, then our focus is no longer on the grace of God to be given us through Jesus Christ, but rather through the things that we do for God to try and earn his favor so that we're good enough for Jesus. Do you guys see the difference between those two things? Because if we do... The rule way, we might look the same as everybody else on the outside, but on the inside, guess what? Trying to keep rules is hard. Trying to keep rules is demanding. Trying to keep rules can really 
get at you after a while. You know why? Because in the end, we're still dealing with our human nature, and our human nature doesn't want to do those rules. Everything that it talks about in Romans chapter 1 resonates with me, not because I want justice done on the ungodly, but I want to do the things of the ungodly. And if you're honest, you do too. And if we look at salvation through Jesus Christ as a list of rules in order to earn that favor, we're going to get tired of keeping the rules. That's what happened to the Jews over and over and over and over again. They got tired of keeping the rules. Because they weren't focused on God. They were focused on the rules so that they might be able to earn their favor with God. And many who find themselves within congregations just like ours look like us, sound like us, talk like us, but on the inside, they're trying to earn their favor with God. And in trying to earn their favor with God, they get to a point where I can't just keep the rules anymore. So I'm done. I want to live my life. I want to be free. And we see this movement right now in, in our world, and it's not uncommon goes all the way back to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus told us with the parable of the seeds. Talking about those that are going to grow up among us. And some are going to be in shallow soil. And some are going to be choked out by the cares of this world. But you know where they are? They're sitting within us right now. And they're the ones who see the, the relationship that you have with God as a list of rules to try and earn the favor of God. And this was the great mistake of the Jews because they relied upon their heritage and their law obeying in order to earn the favor of God instead of resting in his promises which are found ultimately in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in doing so, they're miserable because their hearts want to do all the stuff that earns the wrath of God. And when they leave the community of faith, they'll say things like, I'm finally free to be who I am. Not realize that being who they are only makes them an object of wrath. Something that they were even in our midst. Because they were trying to earn their salvation through heritage. Those of you who may have grown up Catholic, I'm sorry, I'm going to say some things that might be a little offensive, but they're biblically sound. If you're baptized as a baby and you think that that sealed you for salvation, there's nothing in the scripture that says that. Now that might be your parents' desire for you to walk with Christ, and there's some merit to that. But that's not you making a decision for Jesus. That's not you following him. Oh, I've been baptized as a baby. Therefore, my heritage and my Catholicism will save me. No, it won't. So I can live my life how I want to. No, it won't. It'll only reveal that you yourself want to be an object of wrath. Just like everybody else. And the problem is, for me and you, as believers in Christ, is sometimes we forget that. And we begin to try and earn our salvation again. And we go into lists and rules and laws when it's really through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we're saved. That's the solution to our problem. That's the whole purpose of these first three chapters in Romans is to share the the futility 
of trying to earn our salvation, whether we're Jew or Gentile. He's hard on the Jews, but guess what? He says in the end, it doesn't matter. Because the Gentile, whose conscience might be walking with the law, guess what? It sometimes condemns him. Why? Because he doesn't do what he knows he ought to do. Which just means he's not worthy. How do we fix this dilemma? Well, the problem is we can't. But the good news, and that's why it's good news, is that that's what Jesus did for us. And God did for us through Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 11, verses 21 through 26, excuse me. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law, apart from our doing of stuff, right, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, and he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, As we look at that passage of scripture right there, God's answer to our dilemma is Jesus who comes wrapped in the flesh, who lives the perfect life that we can't to be the perfect sacrifice we never could, to die on the cross that we couldn't do for ourselves and raise from the dead victorious over sin and death so that faith and hope and eternal life are found in him, not in us. Because the law just reveals how hopeless our situation is. The law lets us know that we fall short and we're deserving of that wrath because that wrath comes upon those who desire those things. And if you don't see yourself in there, you are lying to yourself. Because we're rebel, we're rebels against God. And when you realize that, and you realize, because all of us have a story, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, you remember what your life was like beforehand, right? I do. And trust me, it wasn't Christ-like. It wasn't even close to Christian-like. And I still, to this day, when I'm talking about struggling with the flesh and the spirit, I have fleshly thoughts, and I struggle with that old life. We go back to what is familiar to us. You know what? It reminds me all again how good Jesus is and where my hope really is. It's not in me or me just trying to be better. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say don't be better. But our focus can't be on being better. Our focus has to be on serving Christ, loving him, walking with him, or else the change is only superficial. It's just a list of rules that we get tired of after a while and we fall and we mess up and we do this over and over and over again and we're reminded of this and this is what Paul comes to this conclusion at the end of chapter three. Listen to what he says. He says, where then is boasting? Like you're better than anybody else? No, you're just like everybody else. It's excluded on what principle? On observing the law? Following a list of rules? No, no. But on that of faith. 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. In other words, the law's function is to show how we fall short and that we need faith in this God who gives us his promise that is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ who dies for you and me, who raises from the dead and changes us from the inside out, not because of what we've done or how good we are, but just the opposite because we are not good and he came to provide the sacrifice that we couldn't do ourselves. Where's the boasting then? I sure didn't do it myself. And neither did you. And neither does anybody who comes to Jesus. Think about how Paul saw himself. Just very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 9 through 11. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what they preach and this is what you believed. Even back in his first epistle that uh, chronologically many believe is Galatians, this is what he says about himself. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, it says this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, there's a necessity for humility in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul called himself, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm not better than everybody else. I'm the worst of sinners. And because I'm the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus' grace and mercy is shown through me that I might proclaim his goodness to the world around me. You know, a lack of humility, unfortunately, lives in our society today. It's adopted by many of us unknowingly as Christians, and it affects our witness in sharing this good news of Jesus Christ. It affects us in three different ways. A lack of humility hinders the gospel of grace because, number one, it pretends that we're better than those who are not living the same life. 
We walk around and look at our society and how far it's fallen. And Paul made the same judgments. And not realizing that we, if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, would be in the exact same place. We're no better than they are. No matter who they are. But lack of humility blinds us from that. And we become that Pharisee that looks down on the tax collector and lists all the things that we do that make us better than the other person. Number two, lack of humility tricks us into believing that others are not worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. We have a lot of sins that we talk about from the pulpit here. I make no apologies from it. But it should never be used as a weapon to say that those people who are stuck in a lifestyle that is sinful and needs salvation in Jesus Christ are not worthy of us sharing the gospel with them. That's not your call. It's not mine. Let them reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never let it be us saying they're not worthy of it. They're just going to say no. You don't know that. Neither do I. But how many times have we looked at somebody and just based upon their looks or their actions, we just assume they're, they're not going to be accepting of Jesus. Maybe you're right. But I'd rather you be right because you tried and they said no. Then you made the assumption. And finally, a lack of humility hinders the gospel of grace because it assumes that they, because of their lifestyle and sins, will not be receptive to the message of Christ. We have the hope of glory to give to other people. And you and I just thinking, ah, they're not going to be receptive to it. And we hold it back. And we don't know. If we looked at Paul's life, Man, Jesus appeared to him, he changed, boom, to the point that people were having to say, no, he's good, he's good, he's with us. Because it was just so unbelievable. Do you know who the Holy Spirit is going to burden that that message of Christ is true? You don't. So you should share it with everyone. You know, we got a cookie mingle next week. I love the idea. And the idea is to bake cookies. First of all, I want to see the most original cookies from this place. You know, somebody do like fiber brand cookie with, you know, chocolate chips and ray. I don't know. Anyway, so have some original cookies that we can have together. But the idea is that we're going to take extra cookies and make bags that we're going to hand out to other people who need Jesus. And you know what you shouldn't do? Decide beforehand that that person's not going to say yes just because of who they are, what they're into, what they're doing. How are they ever going to know about Jesus unless you or me share? Do you have the humility to recognize that you're no better than they are? That you need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That it's not about your works. That you're condemned for wrath. Unless it were for the work of Jesus Christ. To realize that anything good in you is not a reflection of how good you are. 
but how good he is. Would you stand with me? You and I are no better than anybody else. We really aren't. Given grace for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's the one that gives us hope. It's not about following rules. It's about following him. But following him will lead us to obedience. Not because of the rules, but because of what he's already done for us. And when it's all relied upon him, I got nothing to brag about except my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he's changed my life. He can change yours and your family members and your co-workers and your friends and your enemies. Won't you hold out that hope for them this season that they might come to know Jesus? If you need prayer, our elders are going to be up here up front Prayer for yourself, prayer for others that you need to reach out to this season. We invite you to come. We invite you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody. And if you need to repent, if you've been holding out, thinking somebody would say no, we have the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's good news not because of us, but because of him. God, thank you so much for this day and this time that we have together, Lord. Pray in the name of Jesus right now if there are any that are in our sphere of influence that we have not shared Christ with, that you would give us the boldness to share the good news to them. Whether we're giving them cookies or giving them a card or just inviting them to church or sharing Jesus, just one-on-one with them, Lord, because we're no better than they are. But we know someone who is who died for them, who rose for them, who wants to change them from the inside out and make a new creation out of them as I pray as he's done for each of us. Help us to share that message of Jesus to the world around us, liberally, in Jesus' name, amen.